This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right. Hi. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're lucky to be joined by two experts in an area of state policy that's becoming increasingly important in California. I'm going to introduce Dr. Beinman, who will be moderating our conversation tonight with us. Assemblymember Chu. Dr. Beinman is currently a professor of medicine, epidemiology, and biostatistics, and he's affiliated with the Institute for Health Policy Studies here at UCSF. But previously, he served as the director for the U.S. Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality in the federal government under the Obama administration. While a Robert Wood Johnson Fellow, Health Policy Fellow in the U.S. House, he also helped draft the Affordable Care Act. And earlier this spring, he was involved in authoring the Select Committee final report on universal coverage, looking at healthcare reform here in California. Thank you. I uh, really have a, uh, a distinct honor to welcome Assemblyman David Chu to the UCSF uh, community. So welcome, Assemblyman Chu, and thank you so much for joining us here this evening. Um, what we're going to do is uh, have a little bit of a moderated conversation where I'll uh, have an opportunity to ask Assemblyman Chu some questions about uh, what's happening here in the state of California with regard to health care and allow us to get to know him a little bit more and the role he played. I had a tremendous opportunity to uh, uh, observe Assemblyman Chu uh, in uh, the, the work that I was doing to support the uh, select committee that was referenced. Uh, after I have a chance to uh, conduct a little bit of an interview here, we're going to open it up to all of you to ask your questions as well. So uh, please be thinking of the things that you would uh, like to ask uh, the Assemblyman. So thank you so much for coming here tonight. It's really great to welcome you here to uh, UCSF. Um, and uh, I just wanted to start off by asking if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, where did you grow up? Tell sure. us a little about your family, and how did you decide to enter into politics? So, uh, first of all, good evening. Thank you so much for having me here, and uh, I'm honored to represent you in Sacramento and appreciate all the work that is happening at one of the top institutions in the world uh, for healthcare and, and medicine. So, um, by way of background, and since we're talking about the topic of healthcare, uh, I always like to start a conversation by saying I come from a family of healthcare practitioners. Uh, my grandfather sold herbs in the old country, and I always have to explain in a San Francisco crowd, he sold Chinese medical herbs, not San Francisco <laughs> herbs. But um, so, uh, so he, uh, he sold Chinese herbs, and my father uh, was an immigrant, uh, came to the United States in the 1960s from Taiwan and uh, became a Western-trained physician, uh, but also uh, in the middle of his career uh, became a Chinese acupuncturist. And it was his greatest hope that his oldest son uh, was going to become a physician. And I failed miserably at that. Um, when I went to college, I actually took all of my pre-med courses and had hoped and aspired that I might join some of the ranks of those of you who are medical students. Uh, and unfortunately, in my physics class, got a D minus. And multivariable calculus got an F in a math term, midterm, and uh, ended up becoming a political science major. <laughs> and fortunately, was able to graduate, go to law school, um, and that was the beginning of my public service career. Well, uh, it's fortunate for us because there's all sorts of ways to help in healthcare, and I think you're going to help uh, enlighten us about that a little bit. So. Um, 
Tell us a little bit about how long you're in the assembly now. Tell us how long you've been there. Um, you referenced uh, you're representing San Francisco, but I don't know if there's more specific geographic boundaries around that. And um, maybe tell us a little bit about how the assembly works, uh, you know, what your life looks like uh, compared to what we know here in the health center. Sure. So uh, I currently represent the eastern 60% of San Francisco in the legislature. I have a west side colleague that represents um, the 40% on the west side down into San Mateo County. Uh, I'm in my fourth year. Uh, we have 12-year term limits, so if all goes well for me, I'm about a third of the way through my legislative career. Uh, before that, I served for six years as the president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. So I was based in City Hall. Uh, then four years ago, I now spend four days of the week in Sacramento. Uh, and uh, in Sacramento, uh, for those of you who watch Schoolhouse Rock and sort of know the relationship between the legislature, the judici judiciary branch, and the executive branch, uh, we are obviously the branch that creates laws. Um, I represent about a half a million San Franciscan constituents. I serve with uh, a total of 80 members of the assembly. We're sort of like the House of Representatives in California, um, serving alongside 40 senators, uh, bicameral legislature. Every year at the beginning of the year, uh, we introduce bills that we can move forward. And through the course of about eight to nine months, we move bills through the legislative process. They have to get voted on in a number of committees, first in one house, like the assembly, uh, then on the assembly floor, then it goes over to the Senate, where the same thing happens. If you're able to get your votes through a bunch of assembly committees, assembly floor, Senate committees, Senate floor, it typically comes back for a final vote in the assembly, then it goes to the governor's desk. That, was, that would be what you would learn from Schoolhouse Rock. And uh, every year I usually introduce about 20 to 25 bills. And so we're in the middle part of our legislative session this year. And one of the big discussions we're having is about the future of our healthcare system in California. Perfect. Well, that's a great setup because, of course, that is mostly what folks are interested here in tonight. So it would be great for us to hear a little bit about sort of how you think about the government's role in health care and particularly what special role you think state government plays in that. I mean, we're seeing a tremendous amount of media about how Washington, D.C. thinks about government these days. But what, you know, tell us a little bit about how you think about the government's role in health care and California uh, state government's role sure. in that. So, you know, generally I'm of the perspective uh, that when the private sector is working well and there are functioning markets in an area, there's not a lot of need for government to step in. But where government steps in is where there is market breakdown and, uh, and market failure. And I think uh, there are many examples where markets work well in highly competitive consumer markets. But when you have um, a good like healthcare, which is difficult to price, is expensive to produce, uh, and, uh, and, and where the markets do not work perfectly, um, there is, I think, an incredible need and importance for government to, to step in. And we can talk for eight hours about the challenges with the healthcare system, but the fact of the matter is, uh, as I think many of you know, when it comes to the key indicators of access, quality, and cost, the American healthcare system is, is working quite poorly. Uh, we measure up um, very, we fare very poorly compared to most industrialized countries around all of those measures. So we have some of the most expensive care in the world. Uh, we still do not have universal access, although those numbers have been getting better, particularly in California. And our quality of care is mixed. We have some of the best medical care in the world at institutions like UCSF and Stanford and others. 
Um, but we also still have some of the worst indicators, particularly for a country as wealthy as the United States. Uh, in a state as wealthy as California, which is the sixth wealthiest economy in, in, the, in, in the country. Sorry, in the world. So, um, so given these market breakdowns, I think it is entirely appropriate for the government to be involved to figure out how to jigger um, aspects of the health policy markets to be better. And, and obviously, there are many rooms in many places for us to think about how we subsidize care, how we make sure that people have true access to care, and how we think about the quality of care. Well, you know, I had really the great pleasure, as I mentioned, to kind of observe you and other members of the select committee on uh, universal coverage uh, that uh, had held a series of hearings uh, that began last fall and, and finished up uh, early uh, this year. Um, for the general audience here, can you tell uh, us all a little bit about that select committee, what it was about, and, and, and sort of what you learned from that process? Sure. So uh, the select committee uh, that the good doctor is referring to came out of a discussion having to do with single-payer health care. And just for, my, uh, for, for me, let me get a show of hands of how many of you believe that the future of health care should involve the vision of single-payer health care. Okay. So, uh, glad to see that. Uh, for, for those watching at home, a lot of hands were up. <laughs> so, uh, let me also start by saying that I, too, uh, am a supporter of the vision of single-payer health care. In fact, after I f failed some of those pre-med courses that I mentioned in college, I did my undergraduate thesis on national health care politics, uh, really with an eye to understanding what were the barriers to creating a universal healthcare system and a single payer system. I did that thesis now over, now this is 20, uh, 27 years ago, and not that much has changed, although the Affordable Care Act has really moved things forward in a particularly, in a, in a, in a pretty significant way. Um, and, and we can start talking about why I think we all would think that a single payer system is better, but last year, about a year plus ago, Several of my Senate colleagues introduced a single-payer bill. Uh, I think many of you are familiar with SB 562. I was one of the assembly co-authors of this bill. It moved through the Senate, uh, but it got stalled in the assembly. And uh, it got stalled because it really didn't have a lot of details in the bill about how this would work. And when it stalled, uh, the leader of our assembly, our speaker, decided to form a select committee and selected seven of us out of 80 to figure out the future of healthcare. And so uh, I sat on a select committee where we did dozens and dozens of hours of hearings with experts around the state, including a number of UCSF experts, to tell us what are the problems, diagnose the issue, pr provide solutions. And, and out of that process has come at this point about 15 bills that try to address different aspects of the issue, as well as try to move us closer to potentially setting California up to think about a single-payer system. So the major challenges for moving forward with a single-payer system in the state of California are, frankly, multifold. Um, and, and with no particular order to this, there are a number of things that we would have to do as a state that are very challenging that we need to set ourselves up to do. Um, the first is to envision what this is really going to look like. You know, what players currently in our healthcare system would play more or less of a role. And then I would also say, thinking about 
how are we eventually going to contain costs in whatever we do is something I think we've got to figure out sooner than later. That's actually relatively easy compared to what we next have to do. It's been estimated that um, we would probably need about $400 billion in order to establish a single-payer system in the state of California. And in order to do that, about half of that money would have to come from the taxes that Californians pay to the federal government that then could come back to us. In order to do that, we would need what are known as federal waivers, so approvals by the federal government to do this, and that is an absolute non-starter under one so-called president named Donald Trump. So, assuming we were able to get those waivers, we then would also have to go to the voters to do a number of things, the ballot box in California. There are a couple of major constitutional hurdles that we would need to get approval for from voters. Um, and uh, one is known as the Prop 98 hurdles. Prop 98 is a state law that says that 40% of all revenues that get spent need to be diverted to the schools. And part of what we would have to do to patch up the other $200 billion that we would need to bring in every year is we'd have to raise taxes. Now, it's questionable exactly what levels we need to raise, but we'd have to go to the voters to raise taxes. But the problem is, after we successfully raise taxes, Prop 98 currently says for every dollar you raise, 40% of that money needs to go to the schools. So we would need some sort of exemption from so-called Prop 98 funds. And then there's also an overall limit, uh, basically a debt ceiling, on how much um, we can fund public programs in the state of California. It's called the GAN limit. So we would have to overcome that. So you put all that together, federal approvals, support for taxes, overcoming the so-called GAN limit and Prop 98, and then figuring out what the system's going to look like. Those are the actual and very real barriers to getting a single pair done. Yeah, so th those are obviously sizable barriers. Um, you know, hopefully there's some strategy around trying to think about that aspirational goal and working toward that. Um, I am struck, though, you, you brought up, uh, you know, the ACA and the impact it's had on our insurance rate. Uh, you know, estimates now are about 93% of Californians are covered uh, with some form of insurance. So the number that we have to, you know, get to 100% has gotten smaller. You know, what, what, do you, what do you think about, are there some ways to, while working toward this longer goal of, say, single payer or unified public financing, are there some patches that we can do to kind of move from 93 closer to 100 that don't require the current administration in Washington and, and some of these other things to get fixed you know, next week? So, um, so the quick answer is, is not only yes, but my hope is that we may be able to achieve universal access shortly. In fact, there are a couple of bills uh, that I'm helping to author that could get it done this year. And what I would say is it's simply a matter of will of whether we are willing to invest billions of dollars to actually achieve this. So the ACA was helpful at bringing the number of uninsured in California from about 7 million to 3 million. To go from 3 million to effectively zero, there are two pots of communities that we would have to address. The first are undocumented adults. In the state of California, we provide health care to undocumented children, but we don't currently provide health care to undocumented adults, and that is something that I think we should do, and, and I am uh, an author of a bill that would do that. On the other side, there are, um, there are citizen adults for whom 
healthcare is still out of reach. Uh, and these are folks that fall in the cracks. They're not so poor that they qualify for federal or state subsidies for their health care, but they're not so wealthy that they can afford either the private markets or what the public markets can bear. So for example, I have a bill that addresses people who make between above the poverty line but less than 400% of the poverty line. So these are effectively working families, say minimum wage, uh, minimum wage uh, wage earners, and the percentage of their income that they're spending on healthcare is actually quite high. So in that category, there are about 700,000 Californians who, who don't make enough to afford the healthcare coverage that they are otherwise eligible for. And in order to help these two categories of people achieve universal access, it will cost us billions of dollars. It's the, the estimate of exactly how much is, is, is not known yet at this point, but it's at least in the single digits of billions of dollars. And that's not a trivial expense. So, uh, you know, you also referenced uh, the the undocumented. I think during the hearings there were estimates that uh, probably about maybe 1.8 million of the uninsured remaining in California aren't undocumented. It's terrific to hear that you're working toward trying to provide coverage for them. I had an opportunity to, to share some of that with uh, some of the third-year medical students earlier this week, and a question I got from the audience I wanted to ask you, which is, when we make programs, or if there are programs like this, we've learned a little bit about ways that uh, our current federal government has um, kind of co-opted some of these programs designed to help uh, people here are un- undocumented. Do you think there are ways to target programs like that that don't put people at risk or to make sure that we protect individuals who are trying to help and then uh, somehow make them visible to the to the system in some way that could uh, undermine and make it less safe for them? Uh, so anyway, that, that's a concern. I, you know, I, I think we can. I think as a state we have a moral obligation to provide health care to everyone. I believe that health care is a right. Um, and I think it makes sense for us to provide health care to folks who, who will be in our community uh, communities and are not going away anytime soon. It is cheaper to provide particularly preventive health care than deal with the emergency or tertiary care issues that happen once folks are sick. And we are already providing health care to undocumented kids. As a sanctuary state, uh, we have figured out how to protect this data and how to provide services to folks who are undocumented. I have no doubt that we'll be able to continue to do this. Uh, in addition to doing work on the healthcare issue, I'm also one of the uh, one of the main advocates on the assembly side for really carving out protections around uh, our undocumented communities uh, with a variety of sanctuary state policies. Uh, I've authored some of the sanctuary state related bills that we've had and had the, uh, the good fortune of having one of my laws recently sued by Donald Trump's Attorney General, Jeff Sessions. Uh, and so we are, we're in the midst of a very intense conversation about how we protect our undocumented communities, but I, I feel very certain that we can provide health care and do it in a way that protects the confidentiality and privacy of those individuals. Fantastic. <clears throat> so another area where you've been a real leader at the state is in addressing high drug prices. You know, this is an issue that has gotten a lot of media attention. Um, can you say a little bit about what you think is the underlying problem there and what are some of the solutions you've thought about to try to uh, contain those costs? 
So um, skyrocketing drug prices, I think, as we all know, is one of the drivers of healthcare costs in our country. And I know that all of you know that the price of pharmaceuticals in the United States is higher than the price of pharmaceuticals in any other country in the world, including our uh, fellow industrialized country, countries. It is cheaper for us oftentimes to fly a sick patient from California to another country, have them treated with expensive uh, or, or cheaper pharmaceutical drugs that are exactly the same medications that they would receive here in California. It's cheaper to fly them there, have them get the medications and bring them back than it is to provide them with a $1,000 hepatitis C drug or HIV and AIDS drugs or other experimental drugs or other mainstream but critical drugs as well. Part of the challenge is in our country we have a patent system that provides patent protections to pharmaceuticals. Um, regardless of sort of the windfall profits that they make, we have been trying in the legislature to tackle this issue of skyrocketing drug prices. It was something that I tackled in my first year and learned very quickly the power of the pharmaceutical lobbies in Sacramento. Um, they were able, to, I introduced uh, what became the, the conversation in Sacramento around transparency around high-priced drugs. Um, and I asked the very simple idea, why can't we ask drug companies to tell us for every high-cost drug, how much did it actually cost them to, to make? How much are they spending on, on marketing and advertising and manufacturing? And what are your actual profit margins? Uh, that bill was, was, was killed a couple times, but finally last year we had a breakthrough on a stripped down version of that bill that the governor signed, which was wonderful, and then a few weeks later the pharmaceutical industry sued it and it is now bottled up in court. So this topic is a very difficult one. We don't have a lot of bright ideas around this, although I've got one bill this year which is trying to move forward a different concept, which is to establish a drug purchasing collaborative. There are 19 state agencies that negotiate pharmaceuticals with drug companies. And my idea is simple, is to make these 19 agencies work together to pool their billions of dollars of purchasing power, which provide medications for about at least a third of our state, to negotiate as one block, and ideally with local governments and private sector entities. The problem with that idea is at this moment, the pharmaceutical companies, when they negotiate with a department A, agency B, um, the UC system, their agreements all have uh, non-disclosure clauses that say that if I negotiate with UCSF, UCSF cannot talk or share its price point with the prison system or with DHCS, which manages Medi-Cal, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can't share prices at this moment given uh, these contractual obligations, and that makes it very difficult to share this information. So this is a very, very hard area uh, to, to crack, but one that uh, I've been pretty focused on. Fantastic. So uh, you, you mentioned a little while ago that you uh, worked on this legislation, got the governor to sign it. Um, we're aware that this year is going to be an election year. That, uh, I've this, heard that. You've heard something about it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think we've been uh, very fortunate in this state to have some tremendous leadership, uh, but we are going to be having a new governor. Uh, there's also going to be a very important election at the federal level uh, that uh, can provide a, a different dynamic that's uh, going on th there as well. Can you maybe give us a little bit of your sense of how you see 
the fact that there is an election and how it could perhaps catalyze some of the things that you're talking about. I mean, it could provide an impediment. We learned that in 2016 as well. But, you know, to say a little bit about, you know, how you're thinking about, gee, we've got some long-range ideas here about single-payer. There are some opportunities coming up around expanding coverage. Just, you know, a little bit of, like, how you think about the election cycle and what impact it could have on opportunities. Well, my hope at the federal level is if we're able to win back one or both of our houses in Congress, we'll at least be able to stop uh, the chipping away and the eroding of the Affordable Care Act. Um, but, but moving that aside, in the state of California, at least one of the gubernatorial candidates, our former mayor, Gavin Newsom, has committed to the idea of single pair. And so I think if, if, if our former mayor is elected governor, um, he will have made a campaign promise to the voters of California that we're going to try to figure this out. And, uh, and so I think that under Governor Newsom, uh, we will have a very significant conversation about real reform of our health care system. Now, the other gubernatorial candidates have all pledged for real reform as well, although not as dramatic. And so I think it depends on who actually wins the governor's office, uh, the level of conversation that we'll see. So um, this is going to be probably the last question I asked, so I'm going to really turn it out over to the audience after this. But, um, you know, what I wanted to point out is that, you know, as you've noticed, many in our audience here today are uh, in training. They're the future healthcare workforce uh, in California and the nation. Uh, I can tell you from uh, having a chance to, to work with them and to teach with them, they're very passionate about delivering the best medical care. They're also very activated about social justice issues and how to try to really make a difference. Um, you know, historically, organized medicine has not always embraced uh, government and has tried to, in some ways, try to do its own thing. I'm wondering a little bit, you know, what would you say to the future healthcare workforce about how government can be an effective partner or how, how you think uh, they should think about uh, also being valuable assets and, and advocates uh, in working with government for, for good social change? So... Um I remember having uh, this conversation with my father and his physician friends uh, when I was in high school and college around the idea of national health insurance, universal health care. Um, and at that time, in the late 80s, the 1990s, the AMA, uh, the medical establishment referred to these ideas as socialized medicine. And that was the way that ideas like this were, were disparaged and, uh, and, and, and ridiculed. I think times are changing, and it's been very heartening, particularly among medical students, to see a, a, a shift in the dialogue. Um, and uh, the numbers that I'm hearing about, for example, medical school students and their perspective on, on real healthcare reform has been, and been really heartening. That being said, and I say this as, someone, as a son of a doctor who's had a good relationship uh, with, with doctors and the California Medical Association and others, we have yet to see proposals from established healthcare providers on what we can do to fix what everyone understands to be the problems facing the healthcare system. So as I say to the CMA or the California Hospital Association or uh, the insurance plans or the pharmaceutical companies, um, those of us who are policymakers, we have been holding our breath for way too long, waiting for proposals to come from physician groups, hospital groups, plans, and the pharmaceutical industry. And because they haven't, ideas like single-payer, SB 562, and others have stepped into the breach. And 
it's been a little disappointing for those of us that need and want to do something to see just continued opposition to these ideas without proposals from the same quarters and stakeholders of what you would do. And so my hope as I talk to a room like this, my guess is each of you are committed to something different, reform, pushing the boundaries. I hope that within your professions and your networks, you can help push this conversation along because if it doesn't come from within, it's going to be very difficult for us as policymakers to build the right consensus to, to move things forward. Fantastic. Now, I'm going to just move over here. Um, and this just gives me a chance to um, call on folks excuse me, in the audience. And then Carmen will come around with a microphone. If you maybe put up your hand. And uh, we've got a uh, tremendous uh, uh, speaker here in Assemblyman Chu. So please uh, think about your questions and uh, have someone up with their hand over here. Um, hi, I'm, I'm Lake. Thank you so much for the great, uh, fascinating discussion so far. Um, so uh, I'm pretty new to the California area. I'm in my first year of nephrology fellowship. So what are the local market dynamics in terms of um, the large providers and insurance companies in terms of kind of what are what is the kind of structure of power and control um, kind of who is bargaining with who what are the local kind of market dynamics and um, would you say there's any bad actors in that in terms of driving up prices so um, I would say a few things about that uh, first of all in the hospital context we've seen pretty significant consolidation of hospital chains such that we have Corporate hospital chains like the Sutter Hospital Network that controls, I think, over a third, maybe closer to 40% of market share, and are able to use that market share to keep their prices high. Uh, in fact, our California Attorney General recently sued the Sutter Network for uh, potential price fixing in this area. So there, there are issues on that side. And then if you look at the insurance markets, We've seen in many recent years very high insurance year-to-year -year increases in rates of different insurance companies um, with no sense that the companies themselves will be able to abate them. And so that then begs the question of does government need to come in and regulate these companies in the way that we would regulate other markets like utilities where there is the sense of a, of a monopoly power, right? So the reason in the electricity market that we have utilities. So in classic economic theory, if you have one provider, and the reason you only have one provider is it's very expensive to provide, let's say, electricity. And so you have one company in the Bay Area, it's PG&E, and other areas, it's Southern Gas and Electric, et cetera. In, in a particular area, it costs a lot of money to set up the infrastructure. But once you've set up the infrastructure, it's easy to keep out competitors. And at that point, you can start raising prices. And there is a perspective that in the healthcare world, the couple of players in each of these spaces have effectively been able to do that, either as monopoly forces or oligopoly forces, which is what you have when you have a, a couple of players that are able to control most of the market. You don't have the truly competitive markets that we would want to see. And so in that, it begs the question of, is there a way for us to have a better handle on, on rates? Now, I will say, that, that I don't think is true when it comes for doctors. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you, if you look at the rate of price increases, price increases when it comes to what we're paying doctors is, is at a certain rate. It's actually lower than the year-to-year -year increases we're seeing in prices for hospitals, for insurance companies, and 
certainly for pharmaceutical drugs where the argument of monopoly pricing is is the most real. So, hi, my name is Dan. I'm actually not a healthcare practitioner. I'm a, a biomedical scientist here uh, at UCSF. I'm a graduate student. But it's still something that interests me. So thank you for being here, and thank you for your efforts so far. Um, one thing that I'm wondering about is uh, reimbursement and how we can control prices that way as well. So with the single-payer approach that California has been thinking about so far, have we thought about um, you know, fee-for-service versus value-based reimbursement? And are there any extra associated costs with moving to a value-based service or value-based reimbursement because that really isn't really common and established yet? So the quick answer is I wholeheartedly believe we need to move to a value-based system. And the idea of the continuation of a fee-for-service system in the healthcare markets just doesn't make sense. You're, when, you, when you pay for widgets, i.e. you pay for service that's given, the incentive is to, uh, to, to produce as many of those services or widgets as you can, as opposed to trying to address whether a patient is healthy or not. Um, there are some newer models that have been attempted in the healthcare system to move toward a value-based system, but this is one of the health policy systemic changes that I think we can move forward on now, before, before we have single payer, before Donald Trump gets kicked out of office, to move our entire state healthcare system toward a value-based system. I'll also mention that I think another issue we have is the over-reliance on specialty medicine. And that's all wrapped up in the screwed up incentives that impact all of you who are medical students. So uh, you go through a very expensive medical school, medical school education um, and there are more jobs and you know it's much more lucrative to go and get do your residency and specialize, specialize, specialize and get paid the big bucks at the high-end specialties as opposed to going into primary care. And, and the estimates that I have heard is when you have a system that's say two-thirds prim- uh, specialists versus a third primary care, in virtually every other major industrialized country, the ratio ex- is exactly the opposite. You have say two-thirds primary care specialists, uh, 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 primary care providers, and, and a third specialist. Now, how do we change up that incentive? I think it it starts with medical education and how we think about loan forgiveness and how we move people to the kinds of fields that we want. Um, And I'll mention that uh, when I graduated from college in 1991, um, and I was applying to graduate schools in public policy, I had an essay question, um, and I remember this, 1990, to one of the public policy schools, and it said the following. In the United States, we are underserved by primary care physicians, overserved by specialists, and there are many parts of the country that, uh, that don't have enough primary care physicians. What, write a two-page memo on how you would change that. And I wrote that memo 27 years ago, and today we still have that problem in spades. And so we are trying to grapple with this, my hope, in the next few years in the legislature. I think we need to grapple with this in a very significant way. I think it's going to mean some radical changes in how we view all of you who are medical students and how we incent you to go in one direction versus another. So with the Affordable Care Act, the expansion of Medi-Cal, we've essentially created a two-tier system people with private insurance and Medicare on one hand and people with Medi-Cal on the other hand, absent single payer, how would you give everybody the same broad access, um, period? Simple question. 
Um, that is part of the appeal of a single-payer system, of really just having one rate. And, um, you know, at some levels, I, I, would, I would think we not only have a two-level system, we have a three-level or a multi-level, depending on whether you are uh, accessing at the private level or at the Medicare level or at a Medi-Cal level. Um, there has been a debate about whether we should try to establish in the state of California a so-called public option, which would bolster... Um, and, and potentially be the precursor for what could be the single-payer option in, at some point down the future. Um, but, but you're absolutely right. And, and this is part of why, why, for me, the appeal of single-payer is, is, is so strong. It just doesn't fundamentally feel fair uh, that we have at least this two-tier system where folks who have, uh, who have the green can, can pay for more care. And then everyone else, which in the state of California, in our medical system, um, it's a third of the state. Have, have to deal with, with second-tier care. That's fundamentally, that, that from, a, from, from any standpoint, that, that just doesn't feel right. So uh, we are having a conversation about ways for us to bolster, say, the Medi-Cal system to get Medi-Cal rates up higher to, say, Medicare rights, uh, rates. There's also a conversation about how do we bring down some of the rates uh, on the private side to bring it closer to, say, Medicare rates. What's hard about it is to figure out exactly how far you need to bump something up, pull something down, what the mechanism is to do that. Um, all of this would require uh, winners and losers. And the problem in politics with winners and losers is uh, whenever you're trying to change the status quo, the, the losers tend to fight a lot harder than the winners. And that's why you don't get change. We have another moment in politics that may be coming up. And so what, my question is, what are we going to do to capture the public's support for a really meaningful change in the healthcare system as opposed to jiggering aspects of the healthcare markets, which I think will simply lead to more disillusionment? Yeah, it's a great question, and this is hard. Um, right now, I know in California, the idea of single-payer polls very high because it's, it's simple. Um, but I also know that if when the opposition lays out the counter-arguments to single-payer and talks about what it could entail, it's easy to drive those numbers down. I remember in the early 1990s when, uh, when President Bill Clinton, through his wife Hillary, tried to move forward this idea of universal health care, it got bogged down in sort of the incredible complexity of what they were trying to do, and, 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 and reform died in 1994 based on that, as reform almost died with Obamacare. And I think part of the challenge with Obamacare in the first couple years, as we know, Republicans did a masterful job politically of railing on what this would all mean and railing on what you referred to as uh, the over-encroachment in government in, in this. So for example, uh, the idea of the individual mandate, right, the idea that in Obamacare, uh, we require everyone in the United States to get insurance. And if you don't, you would be penalized. That f somehow felt un-American because uh, a Republican perspective is, hey, folks should just buy health insurance if they don't. If they don't want to do it, that's their own free will. And they don't have health insurance uh, when they get sick. We all know what the problem with that is. Uh, healthy individuals tend to opt themselves out of getting health insurance. Younger folks tend to opt themselves out. Um, we do what's known in health policy as we sort of cream, take the cream out of, of folks, and it's the sicker folks that use more health care expenses 
uh, that, that then have a smaller pot of money to support rather than broadening what is that insurance pool. That to me is market failure. And that's when government has to step in and say, if we're going to be able to afford health care for everyone, we need everyone to participate in the pool. The individual mandate was one of the most unpopular aspects of the ACA. Um, and it's examples like that that sort of hang us up as we're trying to think about this. I think part of the appeal of single payer, though, politically, is the simplicity. It's not just the fact that uh, it will be cheaper if you take 25 or 30% of the administrative costs out of the system. Uh, it's the fact it's easy for people to understand that if you just have fewer levels of paperwork, um, everyone has to be part of the system, all monies go into one place and get paid out of one place. That has, uh, a, I think, a simple appeal, but also a very real and good policy appeal that could lead to change. But as we've seen over the decades, from the Medicare discussion to the Medicaid, Medi-Cal discussion to Obamacare, it's easy for, uh, for opposition to nitpick things. And I always say in politics, it's, it's, it's much easier to kill ideas than to help move forward ideas. And so we're going to have to be smart in how we do this. And, and to some degree, the failure of SB 562 to, to move last year in the assembly was because too many of these oppositional questions came up and we just didn't have good answers to them. What are some ways that outside of single payer or other things that we could do to really spur innovation in how we organize services around the people and communities that need them? When government gets too involved, um, it moves away from the free market system. And the problem with that is, again, the free market system on its own is not leading to the right results. It's often leading to more monopoly results and, uh, and, and fewer players able to control costs over time. Um, and I would also say, because you're a physical therapist, you represent a licensed profession in a healthcare world where there are dozens and dozens of licensed professions that are regulated by the state. And under state law, what you can do as a physical therapist, what any of you who are physicians or RNs, or, and I just go through the litany of professions in the healthcare world, what you're able to do is actually defined by law. Um, but oftentimes it's defined by law, not necessarily based on what is most efficient for the system, but what each of your professions has been able to exact out of the political process. And what I have found, we have in Sacramento what are known as scope of practice fights. And what we refer to as that is, if you imagine that what PTs can do is defined in law, what doctors can do is defined in law, and so on. Um, scope of practice fights is what happens when one profession, let's say physical therapists, want to do something, uh, provide some set of services to your patients that may be cheaper and easier for you to do compared to, say, a doctor. And you might be able to do it at $100 an hour, and a physician would only be able to do it at $350 an hour. But because of the definition of scope of practice, doctors have that monopoly to do it. And it's very difficult to change scope of practice laws. And oftentimes, it's the professions that have the status quo interest in keeping things the way they are that are able to keep practicing in a way that's expensive or too expensive for society. But the monopoly already exists and we can't do anything about it. The other thing I would say is this stuff is remarkably complicated. Um, I have done a deep dive on healthcare issues, not just in the last six months, but through the course of my career. And I feel like I'm just starting to scratch the surface of this. Your professors know a lot more about this than I do, and I know a lot more about this than your average policymaker. It's super hard both to figure out as a policymaker, but also to explain to the public. And, and so we really need 
healthcare practitioners and providers to work with us as partners, but at this moment, we don't have proposals, as I said before, coming out of your world. And so, again, all of you who care about this, being players in your own profession, saying to your trade associations, hey, what are we gonna do to deal with this? We either want single payer, we want some reform, we need you to push for us, and if they're not willing to, helping to change the advocacy from within is something that would help us get something done bigger at the reform level. You know, one, one thing I'll just comment on, because that was a terrific answer, but you know, one of the things I think that has been kind of an exciting thing that's generated from the ACA has been uh, this movement that you talked about earlier, Assembly met the changes in the payment models. And I think it has created a sense of, huh, if we aren't just getting paid fee-for-service, we can start to think about populations and more efficient ways that providers can be responsible for those costs. And I think that is moving us forward, perhaps away from kind of the landline toward the cell phone, uh, you know, kind of transition. But it's it's clunky because we're living in both worlds at the same time. We still have some fee-for-service business coming in and some of these alternative payment models. But I've seen a tremendous excitement among our students and residents and, you know, I think it's captured in your question about, you know, now with new payment models, there is the opportunity to be more innovative. And I think IT is clearly part of that uh, as well. So it's, it's a really important, the scope of practice issue is a very real one. I think you were very eloquent on that. But I also do think that the payment reforms also can really fuel some of this innovation, which is so important uh, in, in uh, making our healthcare system deliver higher value. You mentioned some of the logistical challenges in passing SB 562, um, hurdles that feel difficult, and we know that when there's enough pressure, um, you know, really incredible bills can be passed. Um, and you also mentioned the need for a more unified sort of message from the healthcare world that single payer is something that they stand behind. Um, so I'm wondering, what does that look like practically? How could we, as a healthcare community, um, be effective in convincing some of your colleagues who are perhaps less bought into single payer than you are? You know, it's interesting. Um, I have publicly, uh, in a positive way, challenged the established healthcare interests to provide us with solutions. So I mean, you've probably heard me say at hearings, um, I've, I've said to CMA and the hospitals and the plans, we are waiting for your proposals. Mm -hmm. And until you come out with a proposal, other ideas will step into the breach. Um, but I would say a very simple thing for you to think about. The local medical society, the San Francisco Marin Society, I meet and confer with them um, at least a half a, time, a dozen times a year. And I've been pushing them on this question of um, where do you stand on this issue? I support single payer, many of you do too. Will you take a leadership role within the broader California Medical Association to, to push this? And um, our local San Francisco Medical Society, like San Francisco as a city, oftentimes are leading the cutting edge when it comes to reform in medicine. I'll give a couple of examples. When it came to fighting the tobacco industry, a lot of those fights actually started here in San Francisco, then spread to the rest of California and, and continued. When it came to the fight against the soda tax industry around obesity, again, started here and continued. I actually think that if this medical society took, decided to take a position on this, and this is just a function of all of you becoming members and engaging with the medical society, you could help push the conversation. Um, 
the folks that I know who are advocates of the medical society, they tell me all the time, we do not have consensus within the medical profession about what to do, and that is why we have remained neutral or oppositional to all the new policies that are coming through. That won't change unless those of you who have MD after name or are, will have an MD after name push things from within. My understanding is a large percentage, more than 50%, maybe 60 or more percent of people do want this. They want the health care for all. It's not like we have to convince that many people, the majority of people. Um, also, California has the highest economy in the whole United States, so the question is why can't we afford single payer at this time? And we have the sixth largest economy in the world. So the question is why not? Why can't we afford it? So again, I, you and I agree that we should move to a single-payer system. Here's, a ch here's the challenge from an affordability standpoint. Mm -hmm. Even assuming we could get $200 billion a year approved to come back to the state of California from the federal taxes that we pay, mm -hmm. which would only come from a future likely Democratic presidential administration, we would have to make up at least $100 billion a year from new taxes. The current yearly budget of the state of California is about $140 billion. Mm -hmm. So the idea that somehow we're going to raise over $100 billion of new taxes on top of $140 billion, that is almost virtually a non-starter. I can't, I can't figure out how, what I would do to raise revenues or, or tax California um, that would actually pass the voters. And until someone can come and says, hey, it's some combination of sales tax and the business tax and corporate taxes and payroll taxes, and that's somehow going to raise almost the budget of the entire state of, of California, that's, that's the big challenge. But I agree with you that aspirationally it's something that we, we ought to do, and that's, that's one of the big challenges of what, what we're, we're, we're trying to face right now. You know, this issue of underinsurance that you highlighted, and uh, it was very interesting, I thought, at the I hearings. Think I, I think I brought it up. Yeah, yeah, that, you know, the b biggest coverage plan that actually has the underinsurance is, what, what do people think, which one? If you're in Medicare, Medi-Cal, private insurance, who, who do you think is underinsured the most? It's actually the Medicare program, right? So you hear a lot about Medicare for all, which is a lovely catchphrase and has a lot of nice equity concepts to it, but there are still significant gaps. The underinsurance of Californians is a severe issue that I don't think is covered. It's one that I raised often during the yep. select committee hearings. My question had to do, again, going back to kind of scope, scope of practice and what some other states as well as the VA have been successful in doing in order to increase access to primary care physicians is to uh, grant nurse practitioners, um, essentially uh, allowing them to practice independently or without a collaborative physician. And is this something that California is uh, uh, looking into at this time? Um, the nurse practitioner fight versus the doctors is one of the, the oldest political fights that we have, and it's a fight we have often. Um, and this is exactly the type of, of, of challenge that I think should be taken out of the political process and should be decided a lot more objectively based on facts and figures and, and where monies are being, are, are being saved. But, but that is precisely one of the main divides. We know it is often cheaper uh, for, for highly skilled nurse practitioners to provide services than for physicians to do it. Uh, but try to take that away from the docs, and boy, that's, that's an intense political fight. When you envision a future with single-payer health care, 
is there an economic impact in terms of thinking about um, if you're streamlining into a single payer sort of format, does that do you think then about are there sort of middle management entities or administrative entities that then would leave and would that have an impact in terms of jobs and how does that figure into the economic calculus that you're presenting in terms of? If you look at healthcare systems around the world that purport, call themselves to be single payer systems, they, they differ. In, in some of the countries, there literally is not, say an insurance industry, there's just government and their providers. And there is a rate sheet on the wall where you know exactly what you're going to pay a physician for a certain service, and the doctor knows exactly how much he or she is going to receive from the government. In other universal healthcare systems, the insurance industry has a role, although typically as nonprofit insurers and not private for profit insurers, and that makes a big difference. Um, so it, it, it really depends. But in, in, in the discussion we're having about our single-payer system or a potential single-payer system in California, there's a little bit of a sub-debate about are we talking about eliminating the entire insurance industry or is there a role for the insurance industry and what kind of insurance are we talking about? So it really sort of depends. Now I remember the point I was going to make to our esteemed RN in the room. On the one hand, when you tell the public, doesn't the idea of a single-payer system sound great when you take these middle organizations out and you simplify it and you go to your doctor and it's just a government payer? That sounds great until when the opposition comes in and says, well, you know, that would mean that those of you who are Kaiser patients who might like Kaiser coverage, that's just going to go away. And, and, and when you frame the question to voters of, well, how you receive health care today is going to change, maybe you're not going to be able to see your specialist as often as you want, you're going to have to go to that primary care physician to start, and we may not have enough primary care physicians at the moment, you ask enough of those questions and that support for single payer gets eroded. And so, again, thinking about what these details look like um, helps or hurts when you talk about selling a public idea. But the reality is here in California, 43% of people in Medicare actively, voluntarily choose to go into Medicare Advantage, which is that they choose a health plan for that care. And that number's actually been growing over time. So I think that brings up the, the dichotomy that you talked about, that it could be that you would just have a single payer, like in the case of Medicare, it was the federal government through the fee-for-service system, or you could have people go through health plans and they could, and I think that was part of what was discussed uh, during the hearings and something that probably still needs some continuing discussion as we think about what a single-payer system might look like. Now, the other thing I'll just mention is the, the, the current healthcare system is remarkably complicated and fragmented. And that, that description of the healthcare system makes it also complicated to change. And again, when you're, whenever you're trying to change something, the status quo interests are going to fight you tooth and nail. Why don't you, with your colleagues, the elected officials, why don't you put together an organization or a, 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 a group to look at what can you do to make this single payer or this universal health care happen? You take the lead, because after all, we elected you, and you are our leaders in our community. Thank you, Mr. Chu. That was my suggestion. So, um, so the quick answer is we, we are, or I, I am. Uh, you're looking at one of eight members of the California State Assembly that attach my name to the single-payer bill. I have 80 colleagues. 
So in order for us to move this forward, eight needs to at least get to 41 or, or more. Um, we are putting ideas forward, but we don't have majority support for it, and that's where you need to come in. When I refer to uh, my challenge to existing stakeholders to come up with ideas, I meant that in the context of when we put forward ideas like single payer and they push back, I say to them, I'm going to support this idea until you come up with something differently. So it was not to say that I believe that ideas are, that I'm waiting for stakeholders to come to those ideas. I'm challenging them and I'm saying, if you're going to oppose me on this idea of single payer, you can't oppose me unless you have an idea that is better. Mm -hmm. Now, all that being said, um, we don't have enough support at this moment to move forward these big ideas. So I can do what I can as one of eight or one of 10 or one of 12, but until we get to 41 or more in two houses, uh, we're stuck with the system we have. Now let me also say one other thing, which is typically in politics, things don't change until there is an incredible deep sense of crisis. And um, I'm not sure if we're there yet in California. I think you are there. I think many of us in this room are here because we believe that crisis exists. I'm not sure if that is uh, a perspective that is shared by enough Californians so that when they hear the counter arguments for reform, they are persuaded. I don't know if there's enough support in the state of California for the idea of raising taxes to the tune of $100 billion to what we have. Uh, I mean, again, just think about it. Think of what you pay in taxes today and think about almost doubling that and think about getting half of the state of California to agree to do that. That is a political challenge. So until we get there, uh, we're stuck with the status quo. But again, it's through conversations like this, it's through organizing, it's through all of you engaging your networks to push it that we'll be able to get to, to something that, that resembles real reform. Well, with that, um, I just want to say how incredibly fortunate we are in San Francisco to have such an amazing representative for us uh, in Sacramento, uh, so articulate on the issues. I would challenge any of us to be able to speak about politics to the degree that this gentleman was able to speak about our field of health care. I mean, quite remarkable. We're so fortunate to have you, and thank you for spending uh, an hour and a half with us to uh, enlighten our community about what you're doing. Please join me in a round of applause for a second. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.